good to see everybody today. Everybody doing good today? What a wonderful turn of weather. I love, absolutely love fall weather. You may remember that I also love summer and winter and spring. Whatever month or whatever season we're in happens to be my favorite. It's kind of the way it works. One more. I sure will. Well, before we get started, I want to shout out thanks to Trey for the word you delivered last week. It is true that fear has no place in the heart of a believer. If you weren't here, it's available on our, I don't know, some sort of a online, I listened to it on Apple Podcasts, I think. So, uh, that's a good word. The fear is kind of everywhere today, and it's a function of, we've said for a long time that the currency of our generation is fear. That's the world trades in fear. The news outlets, media, everything trades in fear, and, and a lot of the fear that is uh, running rampant in the world today, um, you can make the case it's well-founded because the world's kind of a mess. There's a lot of legitimate negative things going on, uh, trying to go on. Two weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Esther, and um, I know that some of you did your homework, most of you did not, which is reflective of your time in school, and your GPAs reflected that. So the test, we're going to move it till next week on the book of Esther to give you guys a chance to do your homework. Now, the book of Esther is just an interesting study. Um, this is part two in the book of Esther. The title of the message is, Yet Who Knows? That's the title of what we're going to look at today. And there's a few different angles of it. I'm just kind of sorting through where we're exactly going. Um, we started two weeks ago looking at a sermon that was titled, For Such a Time as This, which is actually the second part of the verse that today's title comes from. And, and we looked at Esther's life, and her life was set in a time that was worse than ours in a lot of ways. Like socially, um, her status in the world, yeah, she wound up as the queen, but, but she wasn't in a good situation. Um, the world was kind of a mess. She was living in a dictatorship um, with a, or a monarchy that functioned like a dictatorship. Whatever the king said went. There was no voting. You didn't get a say in things. It was whatever the king said happened. Um, and it was a godless society that she was existing in, that she had grown up in. She was living in exile. We don't even, most of us in this room have just whatever concept we can grasp from occasionally maybe a movie or books that we've read about what exile is even like. Like we don't even, we can't even wrap our brains in 2023 in the middle of the Midwest in the United States, exile is like, I don't know, was that a band from the 80s maybe? It's a concept. It's not a, it's not a principle or a way of living, a worldview that we can really wrap our heads around. We talked a little bit about that. It was, it was not good times that she was living in. Now, were there rich people? Yeah. She wound up a rich person. But rich people isn't, just to be rich doesn't mean you have good times, doesn't mean you have liberty or freedom. 
doesn't mean that things are going your direction necessarily. You know, she was an orphan. Um, she was living in the capital city of Persia. Susa is what we know it secularly. In the scripture, it talks about it Shushan, but it's the same city, the city of Susa. Under the reign of King Xerxes II, which is ironic because his dad's name was Cyrus, but she had been raised up by her cousin Mordecai. A lot of us in the church in the flannel graph Sunday school days, we learned that it was her uncle. It's actually her cousin, but it was a, I think it was a generation off of her is how we get that. But at any rate, it wasn't her dad. She didn't have, uh, biological parents were gone. The society of the Persian Empire at that time was very secular, very immoral. We've got immorality today, and they had immorality then. And I honestly don't think, if we understood it in context, there's everybody today wants to say, it's never been this bad. Anybody heard that or said that? I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but we hear, it's like, it was bad in the 50s, wasn't it? But boy, it was never as bad as it is today. I hear that all the time. It's never been quite like this before. And yet, Scripture tells us that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. So it's been the worst it's ever going to get. It's already been that before. It's like just something to wrap our, like, just be okay with. It's like, I'm not okay with, I'm not saying we embrace the problems. I'm just saying we got to stop with this, like, this is worse than it's ever been. It's like, well, we've been here for, I mean, at the longest, 100 years, which doesn't get us back real far, even in a young earth model. It's like we, don't, we haven't been here that long to be real authorities on it, have we? We've been here for a little while, and books tell us some stuff, but you know, a book doesn't really tell you what the tension of the 1860s was. Doesn't tell us what the problems of the dark ages were. Doesn't reveal the issues that the early church had when they were being rounded up and fed to lions regular. We don't understand that. It's like, well, it's never been this bad before. Esther's time in, in where the story of Esther was set, there's stuff for us. There's revelations of the Messiah, which is the first thing we always look at in Scripture. We always want to look for the revelations of the Messiah. And today, we're only going to look for a few minutes. Uh, we got a little bit more worship coming up um, when we're done with this. So we're not going to go real long today. But there's a few things that I do want to draw out of Esther's story. We looked two weeks ago that uh, through, through God's provision, Esther's name uh, in Hebrew meant myrtle, which is a symbolic, it's symbolic of blessing and provision, a tree that springs up. And then her, the name Esther in, I think it was, I, shouldn't, I should have looked this up before I said it, but in Greek was a star. So she was a star that springs up, symbolic of provision, and blessing. There's, this, is, this is by God's provision, and we struggle with this. We're either on, it seems today that we're on one side or the other of events. I want to just talk about this. We're not going to look at a bunch of scripture right now. I just want to talk about this because I feel like in Christianity, we're, we're either in the camp, we're in the corner where everything that happens was ordained by God. Maybe you've been there, maybe you are there, maybe you know somebody there. Everything that happens, doesn't matter what it is, 9-11, uh, car accidents, sickness, whatever. It's like, well, it was ordained because it's, it's ordained because because of God being eternal, it was ordained by God. Or 
we, the other side of that spectrum is that nothing, that God is outside of everything and things just happen and it's just sort of mass chaos. And it's, you, some of you are staring at me with this kind of look. Like we're going we're gonna to kind of take this a little bit apart because it's not either or of those. See, for something to take place, God does not need to ordain it. That's important to understand. For a thing to take place, God does not need to ordain it. He does not need to lay out the plan and put his stamp, his signet ring stamp on it. Things happen. You say, I don't know about that. Well, we know through Scripture that it is not God's will for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to have everlasting. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And yet we know that people perish without coming to repentance. It's not a warm, fuzzy reality, but it is reality. And that simple uh, equation reveals that not everything that occurs has God's stamp of approval on it. The very fall of man reveals that was never God's best. That's why he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, nor is it just mass chaos. Can I get an amen? We need a little, like, it's not mass chaos either. We know Paul reveals it. We know, and he says it like it's, of course we know. God works all things together for the good of them that love him, that are called according to his purpose. So things happen, and God's working. And this story of Esther is such a clear revelation of that. God's not a fan of King Xerxes II method of finding a wife. It's not like, that's the best plan we got. Just find all the babes in the whole region, and you just pick the hottest one. It's like, that's not God's best plan. We know that. We see that in Scripture. But God's like, that's where you find yourself. Watch me work. And he begins to work. He begins to make provisions. He begins, he raises up people. He stirs people. And things work together. God works the things that happen. Not ordains everything that happens, but is able, because he's outside of time and space, to work things for their good and his glory. So often when we read Bible stories, and I'm guilty of this too, and I know that whether you think you are or not, we're all guilty of this. When we read Bible stories, we very often read them. A lot of times we know the end. I mean, I don't remember the first time I read the story of Esther. I don't remember. We grew up reading, you know, if you grew up in the church, you grew up reading the Bible, it's like, I don't remember. Like, I always kind of knew, like, there's a bad guy, and there's, like, her uncle, and maybe some, she goes to the king, and then, like, the Jews are saved. I think that's probably the, the most, like, you kind of know the end. So when you're reading the story, it's easy to read, especially the only verse, Jane asked me what verses, if I had any scripture, I said, yeah, Esther 4, 14. It's the most famous verse in the book of Esther, and we're just going to park there for a minute. We, we read this verse. Anybody ever quoted this part of this verse? And maybe when you quote it, you're not even sure about it, but for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. No one quotes that part. But you and your father's house will perish now, here's the quotable quote of the whole book. Yeah, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. There's conferences. There's entire week-long conferences about for such a time as this. 
And the cool thing is, like, you could make this case to every generation of humans that have ever lived, right? Like Noah, there's no more important person in the book of, in the whole Bible than Noah. Like he was, because if he had failed, it's over. Well, but you can make that case about Abraham. Well, but you can make that case about Joseph. Like if Joseph had failed, it's like kind of game over. And then you get all, it's like if Jesus failed, it's game over. Everybody lived for such a time as this. But what we tend to read when we hear that verse, and if you study the book of Esther, we almost read it like more, so these are Mordecai's words. We looked at they were re, uh, relayed by a eunuch named Hattach, back and forth between Esther and Mordecai, Esther and Mordecai. These are Mordecai's words to Esther. It's like, listen, God's going to provide a way for his people, but if you sit quietly by, it ain't going to be you. You're going to perish. You can participate, and then he asks a question, for how do you, who knows, maybe you're here for such a time as this. Because this time is here, maybe God raised up this myrtle, this, this star of provision and blessing. Maybe he raised you up for such a time as this. And we read that like he sort of knew. You, you, can you get that in the story of this where it's like, Mordecai kind of knew. He's like, he knew, if you only say something, then God's going to make a way through you and it's going to work out. Do we not read it that way? Like a little bit. Maybe you don't think it in those words, but it's kind of like, yeah, like he must have known. When it's like, yeah, who knows? Do you see? It's sort of like almost, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of an ironic, like, uh, like implied, like, well, who knows? Wink, wink. God knows you're raised such a time as this. And I want to ask you this morning to just read it as a flat question. I want to ask you to read it as a flat question because when Mordecai asked it, it was a question that he didn't know the answer to. He believed he had raised this girl up, but he didn't know if when she went to the king, if it was going to result in her death. Now, you might be sitting there saying, go to the king. What's going on? I'm going to bring you up to speed. So Esther lived in a time, uh, we talked about it. She lived in exile. It was the Babylonians that took them away into, empire, into exile, and now it's a Persian kingdom. We talked about this, the king. I'm going to just kind of, we're going to fast track the story. The king had a queen. She, they had a falling out. He threw the king out of the, or the queen out of the castle. And he says, has this big uh, beauty contest, like I talked about. They get all the pretty girls, and he's like, oh, and it's not a super moral thing. He goes through one after another, and he finds, oh, she's the one. Esther's the one. She becomes the queen. There's a, there's a villain. Every story's got a villain, doesn't it? Because of the Garden of Eden, every story, every story has a villain. The villain in this story, his name is Haman. Now, Haman was of the lineage of Esau. Anybody remember Esau? Esau and Jacob. Jacob got Esau's birthright. And from that moment on, division began. So Haman, that's, we're not going to focus on that, but Haman is of the lineage of Esau. And he does not like the Jews. Now, if you go back, we're going to go back. And the story kind of builds in, in chapter 1, in case anybody didn't do their homework. I know there's got to be one of you that didn't. In case of, the story kind of builds, one, you see Queen Vashti, like you can Queen Vashti. And then this whole, 
beauty contest thing goes on, and in two, you see the story kind of building. Esther becomes the queen, and Mordecai's a little concerned, and so he's pacing at the gates. He's wondering what's going to happen to her, and he tells her before she goes in there to be the queen, before she even enters, becomes taken and taken away in this competition, he tells her, you keep your family lineage a secret. You don't tell anybody. Now, he didn't know about Haman when he told her that, but Haman didn't like Jews. And then Mordecai comes along. They encounter each other at the city gates. Is everybody following the story? This is like the super fast version. This is, what's the thing we used to do when you had a book report to do and you didn't want to read the book? Cliff Notes. This is that version. So, they're at the, they're at the city gate of, of Shushan, at the, at the gate of the castle. And they have this uh, principle in this that everybody who was in charge thought they were a somebody. They, we don't know what that's like here. But everybody, they thought they were almost a god. Again, we don't know what that's like in this country. But they were the ruling class. So Haman demanded that everybody bow down when he walked through the city gate. And Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing. You're not a god. You're a dude. I'm not going to bow before you. Well, that bothered Haman. It bothered him a lot because he was very self-consumed. So he decides, I'm going to not take this out on you. I'm going to take this out on all your people. So he formulates a plot. The plot to kill all the Jews. This isn't the first time. The 1930s wasn't the first time this idea was ever birthed. We're going to kill all the Jews. And at this point in time, Persia was the largest empire in the world. And the, the decree that Haman drafted and got the king's stamp of approval on was to kill all the Jews. Just open season on the Jews. There's so much in this story. At this point is where we pick up verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 14. But before this, there's a side note. There's always side notes. I love all these side notes. Before all this takes place, hidden, tucked away in chapter 2, verse 19. If you want to bring up Jane 2, 19 through 23. There's this little, it's just, it's like a, it's, as you read through the book, if you read through the book like every day, you remember the homework thing, if you read through the book every day, you'll find, it's almost like a side note, it's like also while all the stuff is going on, in verse 19, while virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. This was his practice, he's like, his functional daughter was in there as the queen and he's not sure how things are going with her. She's undercover, this is like, a, it's a plot, like if you read this, and you just like take your imagination and you let it. It's like this would be an awesome movie. But he's like concerned. He's like, I don't know what's going on with her. Nobody knows who she is. Nobody needs to know who she is. But I'm like concerned about her. So he's at the king's gate. Verse 20, now Esther had not revealed her family and her people. Remember, she's undercover. Just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as she was brought up by him. He was functioning as her dad. Verse 21, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Thin and Teresh, doorkeepers, they became furious and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, which is the Xerxes II. So the matter became known to Mordecai because he's just there. He's there concerned about his daughter, his functional daughter. He's, he's like, 
I'm concerned about this. And this is not going to go well for her if the king gets whacked. So he's like, the matter became known to him. He informed Queen Esther. Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. She gives him credit, this dude, but she doesn't claim him yet. This, their connection's not known. She's like, this guy sitting at the gate, he's like, hey, these couple guys want to off with your head. Verse 23, an inquiry was made into the matter. It was confirmed. So he's like, he gets the secret service and he's like, hey, there's a couple guys at the city gate. I think they want to take my life. Secret service looks into it. Sure enough, it was confirmed. Both were hanged on a gallows. See, they dealt with things very quickly back then. They were hanged on the gallows. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It's like, like who cares if it was written in the Chronicles? Like, what? Do you think that's an important detail? Oh, it becomes important. It was written down. They noted this dude, Mordecai, he saved the king's life. It's a big deal. He didn't have to. He was living in exile. He didn't owe him because, like, well, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Let's see how this plays out. But no, he's like, ah, I don't think that's going to go well for my daughter who's living in there. Ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let her know what's going on. And I guess whatever she does with it, she's like, okay, we got to stop this. So the plot stopped. I want you to, I'm going to leave this. We talked about this two weeks ago. You ever watch a movie trailer and it's like, you stop the movie, the, like the movie trailer's over and you look at your spouse or your significant other, your friends, and you're like, we have to go like right now and watch that movie. That's such a good trailer. I want to leave this part of the story we're not going to resolve this today. That part, it happened super important. I want you all to come back. We are going to talk about Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. It's, you got to have it because it's there before we get to 414. It's just there. It's like this happens. They're traveling through their day, their life, the story. And it's like also there was these two guys that were going to kill the king. Mordecai comes along. He's like, ah, we shouldn't do that. I'll tell Esther. Esther tells the king. They smoke those guys. They write it down in the record. That part will be continued. Now, if you have a Bible or you know where you can get one, you can find out what happens with that. <laughs> but we are going to unpack it in depth in a couple weeks. Fast forward to Haman's plot. You say, you can't do this. Yes, I can. It's going to be good. I want you, this is a, there is a lot in this that I want us to get. So, Haman, uh, we, Mordecai paces at the gate. He encounters Haman. We talked, he's a descendant of Esau and the Amalekites. You remember the Amalekites? Anybody remember the Amalekites? They were the guys that when Joshua was taking over the promised land, I just want to, I want to weave this together because I think so much in Christianity, we take a verse or a chapter or a story, we pluck it out of where it is, we make this big thing out of it, and then we never connect it to what all else is going on. Like, Haman was, he had, like, he had bad genetics. <laughs> he was from the line of the Amalekites who lied to Joshua and they made a false treaty with Joshua and then turned on him in the, when Joshua was taken over the promised land. That's his ancestors. It's like, this guy is not, he's not good people. He came from bad stock and he kept the line going. And the line actually continued all the way into the 20th century if you follow it all the way down. But he, Haman was, you say, who's Haman? Haman was a powerful vizier. He was the number two in all the land. 
So there's the king and the queen, and then there's the people that actually are doing all the stuff. Haman was the guy who was doing all the stuff. You know, the, the old saying, like, everybody likes sausage, but nobody wants to know how it's made. Haman was the guy making the sausage. He was doing the stuff to keep the king in power, to keep everything happening the way that he thought the king wanted. Nobody wants to know how it's done, but everybody wants it to be done. He was the guy that was doing that. He was very powerful. The king didn't question. You see it as you read through this story. You see the king didn't really question him a whole lot. It's like, oh yeah, that's what you, th- okay, that sounds good. You want to, the Jews, whoever, the, yeah, that's, that's fine. You want to declare war on them for a day, I guess. You know, you must have a good reason. Again, the king's like, I just want the sausage. Whatever you got to do. If that's what you got to do, make it happen. So Mordecai refuses to bow. And when Mordecai refuses to bow, <coughs> The wheels on this story begin to turn quicker. Haman's offended. He determines to enact revenge not only on Mordecai, but again, on all the Jewish people all over the country, which if you look at a map, and I should get a map. We'll do a map. Remind me, Jane, in a couple weeks, I want to do a map of there, because this is a big chunk of the world was the Persian Empire. This wasn't like, like a little strip of Jordan. This was like entire regions, tons of countries that are today countries were swallowed up in this. Open season for a day on all the Jewish people. And this, this kind of, this brings us up to Esther chapter four. Mordecai learns what happens. He learns about this decree. And he is not impressed it says in verse four, or chapter four, verse one, it says, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He saw this happening. He knew, he said, this is, there's no going back. He understood the magnitude of the signet ring that was given to Haman, that this order was sealed with. This is going to happen. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he went as far as he could. He carried his petition as far as he could. Every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and in ashes. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. Now, we, that's kind of lost. What did the, maids king, the eunuchs and maids tell her? If you read through it real quick, you think, well, the, the maids, eunuchs, and, or the queen's maids and eunuchs must have told her about the decree. She didn't know about the decree yet. The maids and the eunuchs told her about Mordecai. Like, I don't know what this guy's doing. And some of them knew, what, some of them knew their relationship because they knew to tell her, like, hey, your uncle, cousin, dad, whoever that guy is, he's making a scene at the king's gate. He's weeping, sackcloth, ashes. I don't know what's going on, but he's there. So Esther's like, oh, what is he doing? And you don't, like, if you get into the story, I invite you to get into the story. God is a creative God who weaves stories, and there, this is a story worth getting into. Like, put yourself in this story and see, feel the things they're feeling, see the things they're seeing. You can see She had a lifelong relationship with this guy. And you can kind of tell with Mordecai's behavior, 
you almost wonder if there was a little bit of her like, oh no, what is he into now? Like, what is he upset about now? You say, how do you get that? Because her reaction, she sends garments to clothe Mordecai and takes like, Whatever this is about, like we can handle this without sackcloth and ashes. You can get that. You see what I, you, like can you get into the story? It's like this is a life, this isn't just a moment. Like try and understand this in the context of this, of their lives. Where it's like, well send him some clothes. Like send him some stuff. I don't know what's going on, but we need to get him out of the sackcloth and ashes. He's causing a scene. But he would not accept them. Verse five, then Esther called Hattach, and we went through this last week, one of the king's eunuchs. They go back and forth. She gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn. Now she's like, okay, this is a serious deal. This isn't just some tiny grievance that he's upset about. The, they moved the, they took the stop sign down and put a stoplight up at the corner of 5th and Main. I'm, no, this is a big deal because he's like, I'm not changing. This is, we're gonna sort this out right now. So she sends Hattach one of the king's eunuchs. She sends him, and they, we start this discourse back and forth that we talked about last week. And it builds to the point where we get to verse 14. For if you remain, this is Mordecai's words through the eunuch Hattach to Esther. If you remain completely silent, verse thir- let's pick up in verse 13. Mordecai told them to answer Esther and say, don't think in your heart that you will escape. He wants to un- help her to understand You are as Jewish as I am. This decree does not specify royal Jews versus non-royal Jews. We're all toast. He says, do not think in your heart that you will escape because you're in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago, but I want to talk about it again because I don't know if everybody that's here today was here then. It was against the law for the queen to go into the king without being summoned. That's how, that's, that's, we can't really understand this. As Americans today, we're like, what do you mean? The closest we can come to this is like, I'm going to march up to the White House and I'll climb over the fence and I'll walk in and I'll talk to the president. It's like, no, you won't. That's the closest we can get to this. But in this country, it was not like, well, you're going to be, you know, you'll give a, be given a fair trial and we're going to put you in a comfortable prison with all the kinds of good food. And te- It's like, no, if the king didn't want to see you, it's just off with your head, we're done. Like literally, not off with your head, like take him to prison, keep him comfortable for the next 50 years. It's like, no, get the sword and we're going to cut her head off because I didn't ask her to come talk to me. That's the seriousness of this. And we kind of talk about it because like, it's so far removed from us, we can't really understand it. This is where she was at. She was like, okay, I am the sitting queen, the largest empire in the world. Not a whole lot of rights, unless the king's okay with me having them. And my people are about to be exterminated. But if I go to the king, who this is not like high school sweethearts budding relationship where they like fight and argue and they got this wonder. It's like, He picked her because she was the hottest. They don't have like a great relationship. They don't have a relationship where where she can go to him and say, listen, honey, we need to get some counseling. He would say, no. Off with your head. Literally, like, and I kind of, I say it in jest, but this is important. Like, you got to understand, we have to understand the magnitude. 
Has anybody in here ever known that the right thing to do, the thing before you to do, it was right, but there was some cost that may, not guaranteed, but it may come your way? Social acceptance, maybe a loss of a position, anybody. You can raise your hand or you don't have to raise your hand. We've all kind of, like we've been in places where it's like, I think I know the right thing to do. And, and then it's like the more you think about it, it's like I know, know the right thing to do, but I'm not sure I want to pay the price. I'm pretty sure, I'm almost entirely certain, I, I am besides the, like the margin of error, that none of us have ever faced a situation where doing the right thing meant a very real possibility. In fact, I mean, remember what happened to Queen Vashti, the first queen. He didn't off with her head, but she was done. Like, it was like, oh, you didn't do exactly what I wanted, so you're no longer the queen. You're dead to me. Like, this is fresh in her memory. This guy is not like, like I said, they don't have this like, well, we've been married for 30 years and we've worked through some stuff. It's like, no, they don't. This, guys like this don't work through things. They're absolute dictators. There was a lot that was in front of her. And this is where we got to, we finally got to the point where I'm ready to start today's message. <laughs> Esther, it took longer to get through the introduction than I anticipated. Esther, her life was full of things that didn't work out. I can't stress that enough. This wasn't somebody that everything she approached worked for her. She was an orphan living in exile. It wasn't working out for her. She had been taken and entered into a queen's pageant that was super illicit and immoral. It was not. Everything hadn't panned out for her. So when we get to verse 14 of chapter 4, there's a weight that today we just flippantly throw it around. It's like, but who knows? Maybe you're here for such a time as this. Of course, maybe you'll lose your head, but man, that's a great verse. Let's quote it again. For such a time as this, for such a time as this. If we say it more, maybe it'll, maybe it'll just feel like us and we can rise to the occasion and everything's going to pan out. In this moment, she was not sure anything would pan out. She had reason to believe nothing would pan out. She had reason to believe and precedent had been set where her life would be over if she went and did this thing. And so the title of today's teaching is Yet Who Knows? There's a lot of people that are pretty hung up on her being the queen. It's like, wow, but she was the queen. Do you remember, if you go back, the ones who didn't get picked as the queen, you know they weren't sent back to just live in Never Never Land? They went to the king's harem. It wasn't like, well, whatever you guys want to do, you know, it's a free country. It's like, no, this is Persia. You'll do what we say. When she was taken, there was a one in a whole bunch chances that she may be the queen. But the rest of the chances, the greatest chances, were that she was going to spend the rest of her life in a harem. Yet, who knows? For her dad, I'm going to call him her dad for the rest of this because 
functionally, and if you watch this play out, he was her dad. It wasn't her biological dad, but he was her dad. He gets to this point and he says, you know what, you're our best shot. And I don't know how it's going to work. There's a real good chance that you could die. I believe, and he believed this because he, you see him say, I am certain relief and deliverance will arise from the, for the Jews from another place. But he didn't know how that was going to be. It probably wouldn't be him. He was in the capital city. They were going to get the greatest heat. They were in the same town as Haman. We tend to read Bible stories. We always tend to read them. I know I've mentioned this before, but we tend to read them like, like we know how they're going to work out. And it takes the weight off of this. Like, if, if no one in here knew how this story was going to end, I'm the only one with the book of Esther, and I've only read up to this verse, it's like, I have no idea how this is going to work out. God very easily could bring about provision for the Jews from some tiny little country, some tiny little province. Most of them are exterminated in Haman's plot, but I got a few of them, a remnant. I'll, I'll, I'll prolong my seed in this remnant. I'll make a way. She did not know, and Mordecai did not know how this would pan out. Yet, who knows? He says the words, yet who knows? He didn't. Based on his understanding of some Jewish writings, we don't know. There's a lot of people want to make a real strong case that they were practicing Jews. This, we don't know that. I'm not going to add to Scripture and say, well, they were at synagogue every week and they were doing everything they were supposed to do. We don't know that. We don't see it in Scripture. We're not adding it to it. We know that they were of Jewish descent. We know that she understood some value in fasting. And he said, you're our best shot. Many things had not panned out in his life. Remember, he was in exile also. You don't see him talking about his wife and his other children. Their lives were in a precarious position and even more than what they were directly aware of in this moment. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But in the place they found themselves, with the information that they had available, they chose to engage and not to shrink into the shadows. To stand for what they knew to be right, regardless of what it cost them. I want to read that again. If you're writing anything down, if you're remembering anything, I want to meet you here today. Their lives were in a precarious situation. Their social position was questionable at best. But in the place that they found themselves, with the information they had available, they chose to engage, to not shrink into the shadows. They chose to stand for what they knew to be right, regardless of what it cost them. They didn't know how Esther 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 were going to pan out. They didn't know. As far as they knew, it ended with the king not raising his scepter to her and her losing her head. This story could have very easily had a different ending. Then it, on the faith, see, where we're at right now, we're stopping right here at verse 14. We are on the faith side of the equation. 
I want to, I want to like, think, stop and think about this. In your life today, there are a thousand situations where you are on the faith side of the equation, where I am on the faith side of the equation. With regards to eternity, we're on the faith side of the equation. We haven't, you know, the little equals thing in an equation. We're not on the other side of it yet. We're not living in eternity yet. We're in time and space, and we're in the part where we have faith, which is what? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. She chose to believe. Mordecai starts with Mordecai. He chose. He's like, this is the best shot we've got. She's the queen. If he's going to listen to anybody, it's going to be her. And if she brings the case and she fails, God will make a way some other way. If she fails to bring the case... God will make a way another way. But I don't know how this is going to pan out for us. This is our best shot. We're going to stand up. And we're going to engage our society against odds. This wasn't like, well, you know, she's got a pretty good chance. She didn't have a really good chance. Precedent had been set. Does everybody know what that sentence means? It means in times past, things like this hadn't worked out. The king was justified under their rule and law to off with her head. It had been done before. It was not like, well, I don't know. He's never done that before. No, it was like, that's, pro- that's very likely what could happen. But they chose to engage. Faith is always on the front end of something. It's by nature. You know, when we get to eternity, when we step over the threshold into eternity, you know we're not going to have any more faith. I don't want to twist anybody's brains up. We're not going to live by faith anymore. That's by sight then. Once you have sight, it's not like I'm going to just keep living by faith. It's like imagine me saying I'm going to live by faith that gravity's working this morning. It's like, oh, gravity's working. It's, It's working just fine. Because you see that it's working, it would be ridiculous for me to say I'm going to continue to walk by faith. Now, I want to, I want to keep moving. I don't want to lose anybody here. We looked at this concept, this whole thing briefly two weeks ago, but I was led to this particular specific part of this verse for today. In our society, it is so prevalent today to sit the bench. And we talked about this two weeks ago. We talked about looking at our world around us and kind of having that, meh, I'm born again. I don't know. Is it worth it? Remember we talked about this two weeks ago. It's like, is it worth it? Because I mean, look around. It's really going bad quick. I don't think there's any stopping this. Really? There was no stopping this in Esther. The king's decree went out. It wasn't like the house had passed a bill and the Senate had okayed it and then the president had signed it and now we got to wait for the court to deal with it. They didn't do that then. The king took his signet ring and said, this is the law. End of story. It's happening. The Jews are going to be exterminated. Move on. You think it doesn't matter what we do today? You think our society is just like, well, it's too far gone. Like, I don't know if we're going to really do much. I'm not real sure. Probably with that attitude, you're 100% right. But we can choose to engage. We are not called to endure this life. We are called to engage it. Not to make much of the problems, but church, we are here to make much of the solution. Today, in our culture, I see everywhere around us, Christians are enthralled with the problem. 
They are wrapped up, wrapped, we talked about this, wrapped around the axle of everything going on. Man, there's social problems here. There's issues in the education system. There's problems with gender ideology. There's problems with abortion. There's problems with, there's problems. Can I get an amen? There's problems. And there's going to continue to be problems. But you know what we are? We're bearers of the solution. We represent heaven on earth. We've been commissioned to represent. We're not from here. If you're here today and you're born again, you are no longer from here. You are a resident of heaven and you're visiting. We're here. It's like we're actually eternal beings. We're just stuck in carnal bodies. It ain't gonna last long. Whether we live to be 50 or 100, it ain't gonna last long. And we are representing, we are liaising on behalf of heaven. Like we have the solution to these problems. The world is definitely on fire. But imagine that you were to run into a building on fire with your oxygen tanks on, dragging the fire hose, and the building is a terrible inferno. I mean bad, like people are dropping. You've got oxygen, but if you don't have oxygen, you ain't walking out of there. And we run through it, and me and Tom are carrying the hose, and I'm like, Tom, it's terrible in here. Look at the fire. Oh my, that that story's going to fall over there. Look at that family. They're stuck over there. This is a bad deal. And then Tom's like, I know. Imagine, what if we could, like, it'd be great if somebody put the fire out. We're dragging the hose through the building. We're just running. This is terrible. And then I hear Tom, who are you talking to? I'm on the radio telling him how bad it is outside. It's terrible in here. This is bad. This is horrible. The thing's going to collapse any minute. And then the fire chief comes on. He's like, Tom. Yeah, over. This is Tom. Turn the hose on. Oh, we've got the solution. This is a, I, it, it's a picture, but I want us to get it. We don't need to run through this life proclaiming the problems. The building's on fire. Understood. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I gave you the gift of salvation to you, and I want you to go and tell everybody about it. I want you to take the water. Turn the hose on. Tom, yeah, go ahead. Turn the hose on. Oh, yeah, I've got the solution. Ours is not to wander around in the dark with our light under a basket, balking about how doggone dark it is. That's what we're, we're, it's like we've got the gospel. And it's like, well, I don't really want to talk about it with people. What if they don't believe? That's all the more reason to talk. It's like, I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody. They seem to be happy in the dark. They seem to enjoy the dark. And I don't want to rain on their dark parade. So what do we do? We gather, we sneak into church with our lights no one sees them and we get in here and then we're like look at the light and the church is over and it's like okay we're gonna sneak back home i hope nobody sees and then and then when we run into other christians like oh oh wait yeah that's a christian it's dark isn't it sure is man i wish somebody'd turn the lights on oh there's another it is dark isn't it yeah turn your lights on We're carrying the gospel. We are called to not hide our light under a bushel, which is a basket that goes over a light, and then no one can see it. Ours is to light our world with the gospel of Jesus, not shy away from what is wrong because we don't know how it's going to turn out. Esther and Mordecai, it's like, I don't know how this is going to pan out. She got to a place Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 15. We go to verse 16. Go, 
Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, in this capital, and fast for me. Don't eat and don't drink for three days, three nights. And my maids and I will fast likewise. And I love this. And I will go to the king. It's against the law. I love this next. How does this verse end? If I perish, I perish. Well, that's a real skippy message. If I perish, she understood, like, I'm here. I'm in this spot. She did not have what we have. Do you know that she did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of her? She did not have the promise of eternity through the person of Jesus Christ. For her to say, if I perish, I perish, is different than for us to say that. As believers today, we got scripture revealing, and Trey talked about this last week, there's no more fear for a believer. There's no more fear. Our eternity is secure. Worship team, you guys want to go ahead and come up here? Our eternity has been sealed. We can declare with Esther, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to engage. I'm going to take the basket off of my light. I'm not going to shy away from the dark, and I'm not going to wander around talking about how dark it is. There is all kinds of things that are wrong with this world. There's conversations that need to be had. There's votes that need to be cast. There is relationships that need to be had. There's people that need to be fed. Like physically fed. You're like, oh, is that a spiritual metaphor? No, that's a legitimate life thing. There are people who don't have food. We have food. We should feed them. You say, votes, there are literal votes. In this country, we have the opportunity to vote. We don't have to go before the king and say, I hope he doesn't kill me. We can just go vote. We can study the word of God. We can look at our culture, look at our society, and we can say, I think I know the right thing to do here. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you please reveal to me how I should cast this ballot? And then we can throw our shoulders back and our chin up, and we can march to wherever our ballot box is, and we can vote. We can approach people that we work with confident. Number one, confident in our, in our eternity. But number two, we can proclaim the gospel knowing that it's true. We know that it's true. This isn't like, well, this is just one of like 4,978 religions in the world. How do I know it's true? Because our God's alive. And he sent his spirit to dwell on the inside of us. We have the most verified book in our possession that says we're right. And we're verified by the Holy Spirit of promise. Look, I'm passionate about this. I am so passionate about us getting a hold of the solution that we carry. We don't have to just bumble around in the dark talking about, oh, it's so bad, isn't it? Yeah, it's bad. That's all we've got to say. We have the solution. We've got the hose in the fire. We've got the light in the dark. And all we, it's like, oh boy, I don't know. Turn the light on. Turn the hose on. And let's be motivated by our solution, not by the problem. Like that's where boldness of lions comes from. 
from the solution. We're made right by the blood of Jesus. The reason that the Bible says in Proverbs 28:1, the righteous can walk bold as a lion, the wicked flee when no man pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion because we're, why are we righteous? Because of Jesus, we're found in him. We don't have fear of death. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. If you are right with God, no man can bring a charge against you. We can carry ourselves with confidence. If you would stand with me this morning, this is, there's a lot more to Esther, and I'm excited about it. We're going to keep digging into it. We're going to keep turning pages, and we're going to keep looking into this story. We're going to see Jesus. See, the new covenant's all over in the Old Testament. There's signs if you're a hunter today, you know that, that you walk through the woods, you look for the signs. I got a little tour in watching for deer signs yesterday. I almost ruined some of the deer signs. But you can see, you walk through the woods and you can see the little things here and the little things there. You know what to look for, the tells. This world's got tells. It shows us all the things that are wrong. But we carry the gospel. We carry the solution. And that gospel is all over. And cover to cover in your Bible, there are tells. From Genesis, we see Jesus. We see the new covenant. We look at Noah's life. We see the new covenant. We see Jesus. We look at Joseph's life. We see the new covenant. We see Jesus. There's signs all through it. And if you know what to look for, you'll find them. And just like a hunter today can walk through the woods and say, wow, there must be a big buck here. And I'm like, I see a tree People can read the Bible and say, you see the new covenant? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit showed me what to look for. We're going to find that in the book of Esther. As we keep looking, we're going to see the Holy Spirit reveal more and more this new covenant. And we, because of this covenant, we can walk with boldness. I want to dismiss with a declaration this morning. We declare this morning at Revelation Rock that we are blessed and highly favored. We choose to walk with the boldness of lions regarding the outcome of our circumstances. This life isn't perfect Periodically, things don't work out, but we know that our God is greater, and the inheritance we are partakers in is eternal, cannot be touched with the things of this life. Today, we choose to engage our world for the cause of the gospel, for the cause of life. We go in confidence because we have the promise of Jesus, who never leaves us nor forsake us, and we know with John, we can declare that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's worship this morning.